The Tom Woods Show, episode 1449. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the school year is winding down as I record this, and it's soon going to be time to think about next year's homeschool curriculum. Well, how about getting your mental health back and not running yourself ragged as a homeschooling parent anymore by using the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum? Your children will get a top-notch education in all the standard subjects, plus they'll learn how to start their own home business, how to be an effective public speaker, how to manage their money, the kind of topics that don't get taught anywhere. Plus, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you subscribe to the curriculum through ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. Today, what I want to do is, well, more or less reproduce a talk I gave aboard the Contra Cruise, which recently concluded. We, of course, as you probably know, sailed to Alaska this time and had a just a tremendous week together. And yes, by the way, there will be a 2020 Contra Cruise, but probably not till October of 2020. So there's plenty of time uh, between now and then. And I wanted to use this episode to take the talk I gave aboard the cruise and more or less reproduce it for you here. Now, I don't want you to be left with the impression that the cruise is a bunch of speeches because it certainly is not. Bob and I generally give each of us one talk that's sort of academic or at least, uh, let's say, has some kind of intellectual heft to it. But then most of the time, we're just having a really good time socializing, playing games, uh, having excursions, exploring interesting places, things like that. But I did give a talk this time around in which I looked at Bob's new book and I pulled out a lot of ideas and particularly a lot of uh, empirical examples because what happens a lot when we're dealing with Keynesians is that we Austrians or we libertarians are treated as if we're just blind ideologues who make statements really on the basis of our philosophical preconceptions, that we're not looking at economics scientifically. We see the results we want to see, right? We're we're dogmatic and unreasonable, whereas the Keynesians are the ones who just roll up their sleeves and they collect the data and they just they let the data take them where, where it will. And, and that's just not the case at all. It's just not the case at all. That To the contrary, it's the Keynesians who are blinded by ideology. Because as I'm going to show, there's just example after example of situations that they cannot explain without extraordinary mental gymnastics. So it really is the opposite of the impression that the Keynesians leave with people, that they're the scientists who are just following the evidence where it leads them, and we're the blinded ideologues who, uh, regardless of the evidence, are going to stick with our, you know, our crazy, deranged preconceptions and, indeed, conclusions. So the book, of course, as uh, many of you know, because you've heard me talk about it on this show, has the same name as the podcast that Bob and I do every week, and that is Contra Krugman. And the subtitle is Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. I'm quite fond of that subtitle. I actually came up with that subtitle. That does not have Bob written all over it. That actually is Tom there. Uh, Anyway, so first I actually want to start with something that is not so empirical but is theoretical. Just because I think it, it does help to understand when the Austrians are looking at what's happening in, let's say, depressed economic times – they have a very sophisticated way of thinking about not only what's happening, but what the best 
approach should be, or at least what what a very poor or inadvisable approach might be. And here I refer to an article Bob wrote that is included in this book called Does Depression Economics Change the Rules? Now, a lot of us who are libertarians are very fond of pointing out the broken window fallacy of Frederick Bastiat. And I think a lot of libertarians think that that answers pretty much all of Keynesianism. Because as you'll recall, Frederick Bastiat, who lived in the first half of the 19th century, would speak of what we refer to as the broken window fallacy by saying, you know, let's imagine you have a kid and he throws a baseball through a window, the window smashes. And normal people look at that and say, well, that's a very bad thing because there's been property damage and now the owner has to pay for it. But then the economist, well, let's put it this way, the very bad economist comes along and says, no, 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 it's actually a good thing that the window was smashed because look at the employment that will be encouraged. You know, this window repairman now has a job. You know, he's going to come and replace the the window and and uh, so on and on. And, and then this will lead to other economic activity and all that. And so they say, so isn't this great, actually, that destruction has occurred because it's going to stimulate economic activity. Now, normal people think destruction of property is not a good thing. But the economist in the example is saying, ah, no, 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 you haven't thought about it deeply enough. But of course, it's the economist so-called in that example who hasn't thought about it deeply enough because the point is if I, the owner, hadn't had to spend my, my money on replacing the window, I would have had – let's say the window hadn't been broken in the first place. I would have had a, a, a window that was solid and in place and the money that I had to spend if the window uh, were broken could have been spent on something else. And I, you know, then then something else would have been done. So instead of just having a repaired window, I'd have a window that's in good working order plus something else. So in other words, instead of just maintaining what I already had, we could have expanded our output. But instead of being able to expand our output, we're able only to maintain what we already had, namely a window. And so this fallacy of the broken window, meaning that the idea that the broken window could actually lead to prosperity, we see this all over the place. You know, every time there's a natural disaster, people say, isn't it great that the earthquake is going to create jobs and things like that? And, and it just makes everybody pull their hair out. And, and we're always saying, but this is just the broken window fallacy all over again. And a lot of times people will say, see, when the Keynesians want to do fiscal stimulus, they want to spend a lot of money during depressed economic times, People will say, well, if you're creating economic activity through this additional government spending, you're just pulling it away from somewhere else. And so it's at best a wash in the same way that in the broken window fallacy, we're supposed to think that economic activity is being stimulated because look at the work that's being done. But you're just pulling that worker away from something else he might have done otherwise. And so it's you're not actually creating prosperity. But what the Keynesians will say is they do have a response to this. It's not like they haven't thought about the broken window fallacy. What they'll say is, yes, what you libertarians are saying and what you Austrians are saying does hold true under conditions of full employment. Let's say when, when the economy's resources are virtually all in service in one way or another, that laborers are all employed and the factories are churning things out, then yes, it's true that if we fund a bridge project somewhere, then all the resources to build that bridge are going to come from some part of the economy that's already humming along. So we're going to have to take workers that are already gainfully employed and move them over to the bridge project. 
So it's true that it is kind of a wash. And physical resources that are being used for some things will now have to be diverted to the use of the bridge. So, yeah, we're not on net creating anything. Uh, that's true that they would recognize that in that situation. They say what we're talking about is the case of a depressed economy, an economy where a lot of resources are sitting there idle and that are not being used. So, of course, the major resource that's not being used is labor during a depression. There's a lot of unemployment. And Keynesians would say that when there's unemployment, then in that case, basically, what they're implicitly saying is if a window gets broken there and we pull some guy out to go fix it, it's not like we're pulling him away from something else he might have been doing. He's not doing anything. He's sitting at home playing video games. He's unemployed. And a lot of the physical resources that we might need, like the glass itself, let's say, uh, it's not like, well, that's all being used for other production processes. No, it's not, because there are factories that are idle. A lot of production processes are just idle right now. That's what makes it a depression. You have idle resources. So if we try to stimulate these resources back into use through fiscal stimulus, spending uh, government money on a lot of projects, it's not that we're just shuffling resources around. We're just taking workers from some occupations and now putting them into occupations paid for by the government. We're taking workers who weren't doing anything and we're stimulating them into activity. So that's a net good. It's not just a wash. It's a net good. And that's the way the Keynesians describe what they're up to. So Bob then handles this in two ways. The first way is to say, all right, let's, let's take this at face value. We have unemployed resources like uh, factories and, and, and various material factors and labor. They're just sitting around in, in a recession. That's what makes it a recession. But how could you create a government-funded project, let's say a bridge project, that could precisely draw only on the resources that are currently unemployed. How could you possibly do that? And so, as Bob says, you want to build a bridge, you're not just going to need cranes and, and just labor in general. You're going to have to burn gasoline to transport the newly employed workers to and from the work site. You're going to need nails and screws and steel and lumber and other resources to channel into this bridge and at least some of those inputs are going to be diverted away from other private sector uses. They're not just going to be leaving a state of idleness. And then also this category of labor, like labor is just homogeneous or something. This is a similar situation. He says, let's suppose the city of Houston wants to build a bridge. Is it really the case that every last person even remotely involved with the project will come from the ranks of the unemployed and the unemployed who happen to be within commuting distance of the Houston Bridge site? Obviously, the project is going to draw on engineers, construction foremen, and other skilled workers who were still gainfully employed even in the recession, and who therefore will not be able to work on as many private sector projects as they otherwise would have. And so, as Bob puts it, thinking about the housing bust and the financial crisis, uh, the, the terrible economic conditions of 2008, he says, is it really the case that bridges and roads require labor and other inputs in the same proportions as housing construction and finance? Does the construction of a new sewer system require the services of investment bankers and roof layers in such combinations that local government spending can perfectly offset the bursting of the housing bubble? Well, obviously, that's a rhetorical question that answers itself. You couldn't devise such a project that would draw only on unemployed resources. So even if the Keynesian analysis is correct, you couldn't do it 
you could not succeed in doing it. You would necessarily be drawing at least some resources out of the private sector. And therefore, and obviously, by the way, when you draw resources out of the private sector into the public sector, so-called, you're going to be now deploying them arbitrarily. In the private sector, they're responding to profit and loss, which is society's way of saying, this is what we want you to do. This is what we don't want you to do. Whereas in the government sector, when the government sector takes over the resources, how do they know what to do with them? They don't have any profit and loss feedback. It's all arbitrary. It's all politically motivated. It's all consumption. But then Bob goes at it from a second angle and he says, all right, let's look at this more fundamentally. Why are the resources idle in the first place? Why do we have all these idle resources? Instead of just treating idle resources, if they just fall from heaven, all of a sudden one day we look around, there's just people sitting around unemployed and factories that are not at capacity or not being used or whatever. All these resources are idle. Why don't we bother to ask why? And it reminds me of something Krugman said around the time of the financial crisis. He said how tired he was getting of people who were spending so much time figuring out how we got into this mess as opposed to figuring out how we get out of it. As if the two things aren't related. How could you get out of something you didn't know how you got into, right? <laughs> how would you know you weren't doing the same thing that got you into the problem? So Bob proposes that we consider why the resources are idle in the first place. So even if in practice the Keynesians could figure out how to come up with a project that would, uh, whose needs would precisely match the unemployed resources that exist, Bob says, well, the reason that resources are idle is, and, and here we have the Austrian business cycle theory. Now, here I won't reproduce that because I've talked about it a lot. I mean, just you can just Google Tom Woods or Thomas Woods Austrian business cycle theory. But the gist of it is that during the boom itself, during the economic boom that's fueled uh, you know, a Fed-induced, Federal Reserve-induced boom, what happens is that artificially low interest rates tend to channel entrepreneurial activity into longer-term projects. Because when, you, when interest rates are, are lower, those longer projects look, look much more attractive because they're more sensitive to interest rates. I mean, if, if you have a 30-year mortgage, you, you'll know exactly what I mean. If that interest rate comes down even a fraction of a percentage point, it can have a significant effect on your monthly payment. And that's true of long-term investment projects as well, that the, the more interest rates come down, the more the, in effect, monthly payments for those projects uh, come down disproportionately. And so it makes those projects now look more favorable. They, they look uh, more desirable to investors. So it screws up the time aspect of production. It, it, it leads to more uh, long-term projects being started. But, but this is all uh, misleading. The resources to complete these projects are not, don't actually exist. And so the low interest rate is misleading entrepreneurs into doing things that won't be sustainable in the long run. So the idle resources are caused by the economy catching up with reality and saying, wait a minute, this combination of projects and resources can't be sustained indefinitely. We have to go back to the drawing board, stop what we're doing. We have to stop what we're doing, reassess what we've got, what consumer demand really is, which industries really would prosper without a Federal Reserve intervention and would prosper because consumers actually want them. We have to figure all this out. And that's going to take some time. 
So the last thing we want to do is stimulate economic activity. We don't want to stimulate the current configuration of resources. This configuration is unhealthy. It's unsustainable. It was fueled by artificial interference with the economy. We don't want to just stimulate that back into activity. We, we want to rearrange it into something healthy. And here's how Bob puts it. I mean, remember that essay, I Pencil, by Leonard Reed, about just how complicated it is to assemble even a single pencil? That, that's what Bob's referring to here. He says, this was and is a fantastically complex reshuffling of, you know, in other words, a reshuffling of resources after a Fed-induced boom. Now we have to figure out where should these resources really go? So Bob says, this was and is a fantastically complex reshuffling because even something as simple as producing a pencil requires the contributions of thousands of workers all over the world. It's not a simple matter of moving unemployed builders and hedge fund managers into booming sectors X, Y, and Z, because as we've seen above, these newly employed workers will require complementary tools and resources that were not laid off to the same extent. So the issue is, what is the best new outlet for all of these laid off workers such that all things considered, the final mix of output goods best satisfies consumer desires? How can we be sure that channeling them into occupation X won't actually do more harm than good? And the only way we can know that is through the price system that emerges spontaneously on the market. Now, that's kind of a theoretical case uh, for why government stimulus is a bad idea, stimulus spending. You're stimulating a dead patient. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not going to ultimately be a good idea. Um, what you want, and now here the dead patient analogy breaks down a bit, but um, what, what we want is to rearrange the existing configuration of resources. We don't want to try to make it go again. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit together. And so we need to let entrepreneurs rearrange it. All right, now, and again, remember, I'm drawing all this from Bob's book, Contra Krugman, which you should get, ContraKrugmanBook.com. I am the narrator of the audiobook version, and you can get that. If you haven't signed up for Audible yet, you can get that for free. And it's a long book. You're going to learn a lot from it. And get it for free through TomWoodsAudio.com. Anyway, Bob points out that the European Central Bank did a study where it looked at historical episodes where Belgium, Ireland, Spain, the Netherlands, and Finland reduced their budget deficits and basically found that all of them benefited in the long run. And what was particularly impressive and, and surprising about a piece like this, particularly because of the source of it, that it's coming from the European Central Bank of all places, is that it placed emphasis on spending cuts in particular as being a much better way of closing a budget than raising taxes. Well, then Bob in his own work has also done a study of Canada as an example of what we might call expansionary austerity. Because there you had a case where you had a country where the Wall Street Journal referred to it as having become an honorary member of the third world in the unmanageability of its debt problem. But the Canadians rolled up their sleeves and dealt with the problem. From 1995 to 97, total federal government spending fell by more than 7%. The budget deficit of $32 billion, which was 4% of GDP, became a $2.5 billion surplus. There were tax increases, but the ratio of spending cuts to tax increases was about 5 to 1. Then that federal government of Canada ran 11 consecutive budget surpluses, and that caused the debt-to-GDP ratio to plummet from 78% in 96 to just 39% in 
in 07. Well, so then what happened? What was the economic performance of Canada? Well, from 1996 to 2005, the IMF shows that Canada's average growth of real GDP was 3.3%. The U.S. was the runner-up with 3.2% average growth, and the G7 excluding Canada averaged only 2.1% growth. Now, it's true that in all these cases, if you were a Keynesian, you could find some way to say, well, there's this mitigating factor or that one. This is why this case doesn't invalidate my approach, and this is why that case doesn't invalidate my approach. Yeah, you can do that. You can do that. As the examples pile up, you're going to find that harder and harder because fewer and fewer people are going to be persuaded by that. It's going to sound like special pleading. So bear in mind the point of this is not to say that these empirical examples prove that we're right and they're wrong. It's they're the ones who say they're going to live and die by empirical examples, so we're just bringing them up. Impertinent of us as it is, we're bringing them up. And conversely, when we look at the Keynesian approach and the Keynesian side of things, and we look for where are their examples of Keynesian pump priming, Keynesian fiscal stimulus working, well, at least we can say we've got empirical examples of countries that slashed their budget deficits and then had great results. We can at least show that. And you may say, well, that didn't have anything to do with their great results. Whatever it is, like you can, you can argue that. It's hard for a Keynesian to argue that because they should have had bad results, basically, but they didn't. So the question then becomes, well, what positive examples? Do the, the Keynes, in other words, do they have anything that corresponds to the examples I just gave you, Canada and all those other countries? Do they have examples for their point of view that they can use? And the answer is they really don't. The best they can come up with is, well, here's a case where we used fiscal stimulus and things would have been worse if we hadn't used it. They don't say, here's a case where we use fiscal stimulus and everything turned around. It's always things would have been worse if we didn't use it. Or, well, okay, but maybe, but maybe not. I mean, that's not, what kind of an example is that? Like, they can't even show us one. The best they can show us is, well, things would have been worse if we, if we hadn't done it. But, I mean, imagine you've got a medicine that you give to patients, and every single time you give it to them, they die. Is your first instinct to say, well, the dosage must be off? I mean, it could be. I'm not saying that's impossible. But would your first instinct be the dosage must be off? Or wouldn't you think, well, let's keep an open mind about whether this whole approach is sensible. You know, you would think if you were scientific-minded, as the Keynesians claim to be, that, that that is the position you'd take. So here's an interesting quotation. Now, in Bob's usual style, he doesn't reveal to you until the end that it's Krugman himself who said these things. I'm going to reveal that. He simply quotes a Nobel laureate in economics. Yeah, who could that be? Who wrote in 1998 the following. And basically what he's writing is, uh, and I'm just going to give you an excerpt of it, he's basically saying we really can think of only one example of fiscal stimulus yielding recovery. And even this one example doesn't really work. So here's Krugman's own words. The end of the depression, which is the usual, indeed perhaps the sole motivating example for the view that a one-time fiscal stimulus can produce sustained recovery, does not actually appear to fit the storyline too well. So as that statement makes clear, as of 1998, Krugman himself thought that there were arguably zero historical examples of a large fiscal stimulus rescuing an economy from a deep recession. So, you know, there is, there is that. Then Bob looks at a well-known, widely cited paper by Reinhardt and Rogoff called Growth in a Time of Debt. And the basic summary of that paper is that if a country's government debt gets above 90% of GDP, it crosses a tipping point 
and significantly impairs growth. The relationship between government debt and real GDP growth is weak for debt-to-GDP ratios below 90%. But once you hit 90%, something happens, and growth is significantly impaired. So now Krugman's got to deal with that because he's the one who's always telling us we shouldn't worry about debt. So he says, all right, well, look, the, the key things in this paper, they're dealing with the United States and the UK immediately after World War II, Japan after 1995, Canada in the mid-90s, Belgium and Italy since the late 1980s. And so Bob says, all right, uh, we had the five examples from the ECB report. Now we've got these four. And so Bob says, now he has to explain away nine examples? And meanwhile, he admits he hasn't got a single one, that even the depression doesn't really work. So he has no examples for his view. We've got at least these nine. And yeah, I mean, again, he can do special pleading for every single one of those. But is an impartial observer really going to think, if seeing this evidence, really going to think, well, I guess it's a toss-up as to which side is right. All right, let me move on ahead to another topic. And I covered a little bit more than this in my talk aboard the cruise, but you had to be there. I'll just say you had to be there. Um, We're doing it again next year, and we'll give you information as soon as we have it. Anyway, Bob also did heroic work when Krugman came out and proposed that the housing bubble didn't really have anything to do with the job losses we were seeing in the recession uh, in 2008. So Krugman says this, that the Austrian theory of the business cycle doesn't explain why recessions reduce employment across the board, not just in industries that were bloated by a bubble. And Krugman says, the current slump is affecting some non-housing bubble states as much or more severely as the epicenters of the bubble. And so Bob says, all right, you did not misread that. Krugman is here saying that the bursting of the housing bubble doesn't help explain the onset of the recession. So Bob then looks closely at it and says, well, look at what Krugman is looking at in his table. He's looking at the change in unemployment in different states you know, to see which states were most affected, uh, you know, like which states had the worst changes in employment and see if that corresponds to the states that had the worst swings in housing prices to see if there's a connection. But he's looking from December 2007 to December 2008. Bob says the bubble had well burst by December 2007. Why would you choose those dates? Unless you're just trying to come up with the wrong results. So Bob says, well, why don't we check this relationship by you know, going from the top of the bubble to the end of 2008. So Bob says, let's go second quarter 2006. That's the top of the bubble. And Bob says, uh, then I, I, so I'm going to look at housing prices from the top of the bubble to the end of, to the bursting of it. And then the other variable, of course, will be the change in unemployment. And again, we'll do that from June 2006 to December 2008. So he looked at the states that had the biggest percentage decline in home prices, and then the states that had the biggest uh, increases in the unemployment rate, and then compared them to see if if they're the same states. He's got a ranking of the the worst six states under each category, under increase in unemployment and drop in housing prices. So there are six states under each one. There's only one in each list that doesn't match. And Bob says, that seems like a very strong correlation, which is an understatement, because as he says, depending on how we frame the problem, the chances of this matching occurring randomly are anywhere from 1 in 8,400 to about 1 in 350,000. Who are the scientists now? 
Then Bob wants to go on and explain that, yes, of course, the Austrians can account for why there would be across-the-board drops in unemployment, not just in, let's say, housing or financial engineering or whatever. And he says, remember, there's a distortion of the capital structure. And in a modern economy, which is so interlocked, that distortion can obviously lead to a general rise in unemployment across many sectors as all these mistaken investments that have affected almost every nook and cranny of the economy are flushed out of the system. And then also remember too that the economy is not just coping with the after effects of a Federal Reserve-induced boom. The the economy is also coping with the measures to so-called solve the crisis. So the economy also has to deal with the government seizing Fannie and Freddie So basically nationalizing a huge portion of the U.S. housing market. Uh, The Treasury Secretary telling everybody that he needed $700 billion pronto to patch up the financial sector. Then the Treasury Secretary partially nationalizes the financial sector. Then the federal government takes over two out of the big three car companies. And in dealing with bankruptcy there, threw traditional creditor rights out the window. So that spooks the economy. Then the Fed more than doubles the monetary base in six months' time. Then the new Obama administration borrows almost $800 billion to spend on stimulus. Then a giant leap forward towards socialized medicine. And then just for kicks, the federal government also banned offshore drilling, although the rules are yet again undergoing revision, Bob says at the time. So he says, it's no surprise the U.S. economy is suffering a slump throughout all major industries, even though it's been years since the housing bubble peaked. All these sorts of things undermine entrepreneurship, capital formation, and the certainty investors have that crazy wild things won't keep being done to the U.S. economy. They can actually invest with some peace of mind. Now further, Bob says, what would an Austrian expect to find employment-wise? Well, we would expect a general drop across the board as people experience the shock of the housing and stock market crashes and therefore postpone a lot of purchases. This hoarding, so-called, corresponds to a legitimate change in the way real resources are deployed. When everybody suddenly realizes there aren't enough capital goods to support this structure of production, things need to come to a halt while entrepreneurs reevaluate their operations in light of this new information. And then, but also, apart from the economy as a whole, which, as, as you can see, Austrians can quite easily account for, Austrian business cycle theory does make predictions about the relative impacts on particular sectors. So the so-called higher order or more capital intensive and indeed more interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy are going to tend to crash much harder than the lower order sectors such as retail. Okay, so if you have the Keynesian view that a recession is just a general drop in aggregate demand, then there shouldn't be any particular relationship among individual sectors and how they respond both in magnitude and across time. And that's what Krugman says. That's what his story means, that a recession is just a drop in demand. So that drop in demand, there's no reason that it should be clustered in particular sectors. But the Austrian point of view is that it should. we should expect it to be clustered in particular sectors, those sectors that are most affected by artificially low interest rates and that responded in ways that are basically uneconomic. So now let's think. We would expect that if we're looking at construction employment, durable goods manufacturing, and non-durable goods manufacturing, well, in the Austrian framework, construction is the highest order of these because things that construction produces are very capital intensive and they provide a flow of services for decades. Then would be durable goods manufacturing and then the lowest order 
of these categories would be non-durable goods manufacturing. So if the Keynesian view is correct, all of these should have been hit exactly the same because it's all just a drop in demand. Okay, but it turns out, guess what? The construction sector took a larger hit than manufacturing in general, and construction has been brutalized compared to the mild downturn in non-durable goods manufacturing. So in other words, exactly as the Austrians predicted, the worst hit was in construction, second to worst hit was in durable goods manufacturing, and the most mild consequences were felt in non-durable goods manufacturing. So again, who are the scientists here? All right, now there's a lot more that I said in my talk. But for now, that ought to whet your appetite. That ought to make you say, wow, I, I've not heard this before. I've not gotten this kind of analysis before. Well, Bob's got a huge book full of just relentless this. If you like this, you're going to get relentless this in Bob's book. So I urge you to check that out. ContraKrugmanBook.com is where you can pick it up. It is so fantastic, so well done. If you prefer audiobooks, go to TomWoodsAudio.com and type in Contra Krugman, and you can get it for free. And don't worry, Bob still gets his royalty. And if you don't want to be subscribed to Audible, you can get your free audiobook and then cancel, and still you got a free book for yourself. So definitely check that out, TomWoodsAudio.com. I'll link to the book uh, and that page if you happen to forget the, the later on. You think, I know I was listening to episode 1449. All right, TomWoods.com slash 1449. We'll have that link for you. Okay, tomorrow we're talking about the coup in Iran in 1953, Operation Ajax, um, which involved the CIA. That's a topic I'm surprised I haven't covered yet, but it's an important one. We'll be talking about that tomorrow. So you do not want to miss that. I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.